Computing Broadcast a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Here we are at the 100th episode of Fascinating Nouns. You know, in some ways, I never thought I would get to this point because it's it's been a long road, but it's been a lot of fun. And when I say I don't think I would ever get here, that's kind of a silly thing to say because everything's numbered chronologically. And if you start at one and you don't stop, eventually you'll get to 100. So is it a big milestone? No, probably not. If I count to a, a million, you know, I'll be at a millionth episode at some point. I hope I live that long. But this is a, the first real milestone in the show, and I want to thank a couple of people who've made this absolutely possible. First of all, the show producer for the last 50 or 60 shows, Sarah Brandt, she does an incredible amount of work that goes into every single episode, and she does all the heavy lifting behind the scenes. The show wouldn't be possible without her. I also want to thank Leah Visceral, who is a creative genius in her own right, and has really been instrumental in helping me to guide the, the look of the show, the social media, all the, 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 the marketing, the look of the show. Has, she's been absolutely invaluable with that. And to Eric Barrientos, who designed the introduction for the show. I, I love it, uh, the beginning and the end. If you've never listened all the way to the end, um, they're ver- they're, they all, it all ties in. Uh, that thematic, he and I sat down and kind of made that as a thematic choice for the show. I really love it, and, you know, again, the introduction wouldn't be possible without him, so those three people are very important. So enough about the show. Thank you for listening, and I'm sharing this 100th episode extravaganza with a very important man, a man who literally has changed the way we view the universe, and that is George Ellery Hale, and he designed the 100-inch telescope. So this 100th episode of mine is about the 100th anniversary of the 100-inch telescope. And when I say 100 inches, I mean that's the diameter of the um, reflecting plate that, that we use to view the universe. So before this time, there were much smaller, very different types of telescopes. And with this tool, Edwin Hubble looked through and changed the way we think about the size of the universe. So paradigm shifting in many different ways. Um, Very excited to get to this. So I have the absolute pleasure of sitting next to Dr. Cynthia Hunt, who's not only an astronomer, but she's also become kind of a historian uh, or a master of lore when it comes to not only the telescope itself, but also the institution they have a vault downstairs, we're going to post a lot of video, um, that has several you know, photo, photographic plates that were taken of the early parts of the universe that were seen with this telescope. Uh, lots of great historical stuff. Um, I mean, this place is just amazing. You know, this, it's kind of funny because this building is really amazing. I mean, we're recording here in the Carnegie Science Center. Is that the name of the building? No, this is the Carnegie Institution for Science. The Carnegie Institution. So what, why is it the... That's Carnegie Science Center is a museum in Pittsburgh. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> that's okay. What are the differences? All right. So um, Andrew Carnegie, when he uh, ended, ended his career, he founded, I believe, 22 philanthropical institutions. Uh, with his fortunes. Um, so there are many institutions around the country with the name of Carnegie, such as Carnegie Mellon University, that uh, were originally founded with part of his uh, his cash. And so the Carnegie Institution for Science is one of these independent um, institutions. So we are only loosely affiliated with each other in the sense that they uh, once a year get together. Um, and that they were funded by the same guy. And basically. they're fan- funded by the same guy. He was yeah. a philanthropist in the end of his life. Yeah, I was going to say. I assume making up life. for the rest of his life. Right. Um, yeah, so, so the institution itself was founded in 1902, and uh, Andrew Carnegie gave a $10 million endowment, which at the time was incredibly large. Um, 
And uh, from my understanding, it was larger than most university endowments combined in the United States. Wow. Um, and the idea of the institution was to um, let scientists, good quality scientists, just get on with the business of doing science. Let them pursue their own individual uh, research uh, courses of research, and that philosophy still holds today. So mm -hmm. our scientists, we're not an educational institution, although sometimes we have students around, we don't teach classes. Um, the scientists are just meant to do research and do science. Just come here and do what you guys do. That's it. <laughs> wow. That's kind of a nice, I mean, I imagine that there aren't a lot of people who have jobs where you basically just set them loose. You know what I mean? Like you kind of just set loose onto the world. Yeah, I mean, I think the, idea, the concept of academic freedom is uh, really important for people who do science so that they can pursue courses of research that, um, you know, might, might possibly go against the grain or perhaps um, courses of research that take a really long time to complete. I think not all faculty get that option, but they certainly do here. So now, what exactly do you do here? I mean, obviously, you're the, the mouthpiece. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, I wear a lot of hats. Um, but in general, I would say that I tell the narrative stories of our institution. Um, I'm in science communication, but I'm also the chair of our history committee here oh. at the Carnegie Observatory. So um, oh. yeah, so I'm the one who digs in deep into our archives. Um, I find interesting stories to tell, and I find different ways to tell the stories, like we are here today. Now, when you say different ways to tell the stories, does that mean that it has a political agenda that you must push forward, or do you can you tell the stories as they happen? No, I, I tell the stories as they happen. So um, yeah, we are a, a 501c3. I believe that's right. I should have to look that up. But we are a nonprofit, so obviously uh, political, uh, we, the political arena we stay out of. No, I mean like your internal politics. Oh, right? like I let's, say, let's say you stumbled across the fact that um, you know, Edwin Hubble wasn't the one who wrote VAR on the plate. <laughs> like if you, let's yeah. say you stumble across that. Uh, we're going to show pictures because we happen to go down into what is literally your vault. Uh, it's amazing. Priceless collection of plates, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But let's say you stumbled across one that changes the course of history. What do you do? Yeah, that's a really great question. So uh, personally, in my role as an archivist, I think those stories deserve to be told. There are a <laughs> yeah. few stories like that that I have been investigating, um, actually, like specifically that. about Edwin Hubble. Um, and, you know, I History is not a static thing. Um, it's not black and white, and it always depends on who's telling the story. Exactly. Um, so that's one side I'm interested in. The other side is the untold stories that have gotten overlooked for various reasons, which might be political, societal, or otherwise, um, that I've been looking into. For example, the role of women in science, and particularly in astronomy, has quite a storied past, and it's a story that doesn't get told very often. Mm -hmm. Well, so what is probably... In your research, the most, um, I don't want to say unheard of, but like what's the most strange or unusual story that you've come across? Involving anyone. Doesn't have to be like a Edwin, uh, Edwin Hubble celebrity type. Sure. So there's a, a story that involves the intersection of World War II and um, discovering something rather profound about our universe that I think is a story that most people probably mm. don't know. So there was a guy here named, his name was Walter Botta. This was in the 1930s and 40s. He was a German national, but he was an astronomer here. Mm. Uh, World War II started, and because of that, his movements were actually restricted um, to where he lived and worked. And uh, while at the same time, other people here at the observatories were involved in the war effort in lots of ways. For example, Edwin Hubble went to a wind tunnel in Maryland, and um, mm. they were running experiments. Our optic shop was... Um, working on communications equipment for the military. But Bada couldn't be part of this because he was German. Mm -hmm. So because of that, he got almost unfettered access to Mount Wilson Observatory, to the telescopes. Hmm. Um, and that's what he did during World War II, was he was observing He's the heavens, the right? And so after Pearl Harbor, they would have blackouts in Los Angeles, which of course is very difficult for people who live here, but it turns out it's very good for astronomy to turn off all your lights. <laughs> you guys were uniquely suited to benefit from such a war effort. <laughs> exactly. Um, so Walter Bada was up on Mount Wilson in September 1943, and uh, during one 
of these blackouts, he made some of the finest uh, measurements and photographs ever of the Andromeda galaxy. Hmm. And he did two sort of amazing things with that. So one is that he, uh, in his words, he resolved the central nebulosity of Andromeda. So hmm. the ins center parts of galaxies are really bright and it's hard to see individual stars and they weren't actually completely sure there were individual stars there. So he did that, and at the same time, he also realized that um, there's something called two populations of stars, which if you're an astronomer, you're gonna be blown away, but to a normal audience, they won't know what that means. Sure. What it means is um, there are young stars and old stars, and how you use them to make different measurements. For example, you can use special stars to measure distance. Mm. It depends on which type of star it is. So when he realized there were two types, um, it meant that he could recalibrate the size of our known universe. Mm. Um, so he sort of changed the scale of the universe by realizing that the calibration, the measurement calibrations were wrong. Um, but all of this, so the, those are kind of, let's say, standard results in astronomy in the sense that if you're in Astronomy 101, you'll learn of them. But the story of how it happened of World War II and the blackouts and him being German, most people don't know about. Well, it, it's a really interesting story for all those reasons that you mentioned. But it is funny because, you know, one of the tricky things about science, especially high-level science, is explaining it to people who aren't in science, which is kind of the trick of your job, is it takes something like that. Because, for, for example, the, the size of the known universe... To the average person, it's just really big, right? So <laughs> let's say even if he, let's say he reduced it by billions of light years, right? Like, yeah. how, or the, it doesn't really matter to the average person because it's still, it's in, you can't fathom it with the human mind. Uh, so reducing it doesn't matter, but yet it's still for the scientist that's, you know, paradigm changing. It is there, yeah. And I would say in this building that we're sitting in there were times where the paradigm was changed over and over and over again. Our sort of understanding of the universe was completely upended. And it's sort of like uh, Copernicus, you know, so Copernicus who mm -hmm. proposed the Earth travels around the sun and not the other way. Mm -hmm. um, and basically saying the Earth's not the center of everything. That kind of revolution happened here several times, and it's the same story where it's, we're not in the middle of everything, as much as we like to think we right, are. Right, right. Well, and it's true, like, not to, not to take a totally uh, crazy turn here, but I, I'm happy to take a 90-degree 90 90 degree angle. You, when, when you talk about other life forms in the universe, right, it doesn't make any sense that we would be the only ones. To me, that's a logical conclusion at some... I mean, I'm looking at your back wall here, and there's a uh, quick calculation. There's 144 galaxies that, we've, that are charted on this poster back here. And in those galaxies, there's billions of stars. And around those stars, there have to be tons of planets. It seems like a foregone conclusion, just like, you know, the foregone conclusion is the Earth doesn't revolve around, or the, that the sun doesn't revolve around the Earth. But yet, you still have to prove all this stuff to be... Um, for, for anyone to actually believe it. But I think that these, to me, it's like logic. What am I, what's the point am I trying to make here? The point I'm trying to make is that there are lots of logical conclusions that you can draw, but you guys still have to prove it out there. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and when we're talking about life on other planets, um, one of the things that's blown me away, and it's been a, a recent discovery just in the last five or 10 years with the NASA Kepler satellite, is we've now discovered that almost every star has a planet and probably more than one. So the, our opportunities of finding that life, whatever it, form it might be, has just gone way, way, way up. Yeah. Well, and like, that's a perfect example of something that, like, of, if I'm sitting here, I'm Joe Blow, of course there are other, if there's planets around this one star, this particular, I mean, essentially you're talking about infinity, uh, an in, infinite number of possibilities in the known universe for different, this almost, I'm sure that there is almost an exact Earth-like planet out there several times over, probably one that may look almost identical, and I'm talking about like land masses, because there are that many possibilities out there. Um, anything's possible is what I'm saying, Cynthia. Yeah, I think that's right. And boy, are our minds going to be blown when we find that. And some people have, so they claim. Uh, now, now when, we, when we talk about this event that's happening this month, this is what's amazing. So this is my 100th episode. This is your 100th anniversary of a 100-inch telescope. That's a lot. It's a factor of 100 all the way around. It's an amazing thing. But this particular telescope is extremely important because it did change the paradigm so many times. Let's talk about the history. How did this telescope come to be? Yeah, so the 100-inch telescope on Mount Wilson, um, 
George Ellery Hale, who founded Mount Wilson, he had already thought of building this telescope before he was finished building the largest telescope in the world at the time, which right. was the 60-inch telescope. So two years before, he put in an order for the piece of glass. So glass is used for the giant mirror, so they're giant reflectors. And um, what was interesting about the piece of glass, so there's two things. One is that he convinced a local hardware store magnet, um, his name was John D. Hooker, to give him the money to build the glass. It was $45,000 in 1906. Um, the second thing is that nobody knew whether that piece of glass could even be cast. It was so big, they weren't even sure if it would handle the strains and stresses of pouring molten glass into a mold that big. But uh, Hale decided to take the gamble, and I think you could argue he was a gambling man in many ways. Um, so they put in the order. Uh, it went to a place called St. Gobain Glassworks. And after about a year, St. Gobain got back to them and said, yep, it's done. It has a couple issues, but we're going to send it your way. Um, when they received it here in Pasadena, they opened the box, and it arrived just as they were having first light on the 60-inch telescope um, in 1908. And they opened the box, and their hearts sank because it looked like what they described as a triple-layer cake. So you saw three distinct layers, and in between was bubbles instead of frosting. Um, and well, the significantly reason, less delicious, by the way. Significantly less delicious. Um, and the reason why that was so upsetting was that they weren't sure if um, a piece of glass that's, that, that had to be made in three pours, so the problem was the glass company didn't have equipment big enough to pour molten glass all at once, whether it could survive the strains and stresses of both grinding into the shape of the mirror, the parabolic mirror, and to um, hold its shape as it's in the telescope, like it wouldn't just crack because it was such an imperfect piece of glass. Um, so the next thing that happened is Hale was incensed, so he asked the glass company to try again. The glass company uh, made uh, bigger equipment so they could do the pour in one go. The next pour, the mold broke, and they ended up with a bunch of debris <laughs> in the glass, which is not good. Nope. On the third pour, uh, as it was being cooled, or annealing as we call it, it cracked under the strains. This, this is now 1910, and Hale was out of time and he was out of money. So he went back to that first triple layer cake glass and told his chief optician, whose name was George Willis Ritchie, to go ahead and start grinding it. Ritchie was not happy about this at all because he didn't think it was going to work. Uh, in particular, he was worried the bubbles would make it so it wasn't a nice smooth surface. Um, but he had no choice, so he started grinding. 1910 had to create custom grinding equipment, and he ended up grinding the glass for six years. Wow. <laughs> 1910 to 1916. Um, luckily, it worked, and that's the piece of glass that's on the telescope today. Uh, if you go up there and visit, you can shine a flashlight in the backside and see it's green bottle glass from France. You can see all the bubbles, <laughs> but it worked. So. Well, now, now, Richie was pulled off of it, though, wasn't he? He didn't end up finishing that particular piece of glass. Uh, he, I believe he finished the glass, but he was never allowed to use the telescope. That was huh. the interesting thing. He had such a fallout with George Hale over multiple issues, um, that, that, yeah, he, he, grinding that glass was one of his last acts here. Um, it's possible he didn't finish it to the end. I don't actually know that story. Yeah, I, I think when he had the fallout, I think Hale, because he was so insistent that this particular piece of glass wouldn't work because of all the imperfections, that he was kind of pulled off of it. I mean, um, which is interesting because, l let me ask you this, because it's not, it's not like a microscope. You're not shining light through the glass, correct? You're just yeah, reflecting right. it off of it. So why does it, why does it matter that it has so many bubbles in the center if you just care about the surface. Right, so the trick is that when you're grinding it down, so it starts as a cylinder, let's say, or a puck, like imagine a hockey puck, and then you have to grind it down into a shape. And oh. if you happen to run into one of the bubbles on the way down. Oh, I see, it has to be you, concave because to get the reflection, right? Yeah, that's right, oh, to focus all sense. the light, and it has to be a you know, really smooth surface. So for example, right uh. now we're building um, a telescope called the Giant Magellan Telescope, and each mirror is 8.4 meters. And the surface of the mirror has to be so perfect that if you spread the surface out over the entire continental United States, a mountain is only one inch high. So that's how smooth these mirrors need to be, right? Wow. Um, so, yeah, so one bubble would sort of ruin the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you convert meters um, to feet on the spot? No. <laughs> Eight point four meters. Let, let's see. So like one meter is one meter is forty inches. So uh, f 
320... Uh, like 26 feet almost, right? Yeah, something like, like that. Yeah. Something like that. I know okay. once once the whole Pretty mirror big. is, so, so the GMT is going to be, uh, the Giant Magellan Telescope is going to be seven mirrors put together, um, seven individual mirrors, and acro across the whole width, it turns out it's about exactly 1,000 inches. Wow. It's oh, going to be a huge telescope. That's gigantic. Yeah. Now, the guy behind this, um, let's talk about George Hale for a little bit, because he's a pretty interesting character. And then that, let's tie it into the to the hundred inch telescope, and then all the discoveries while uh, they were using this telescope. Um, so George Hale actually was in Chicago first, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, that's right. Chicago. He, I'm from yeah, Chicago. Yeah, yeah. He was at the University of Chicago, and um, uh, now I'm trying. To, I don't know if he founded Yerkes, but he was certainly a key key member in Yerkes Observatory, which is in southern Wisconsin. And he was the one responsible, really, for leading the 40-inch refractor project. So the large telescope that's still there is uh, sort of what you think of as a traditional telescope. It's a long tube with lenses inside of it. Mm -hmm. um, and that telescope really hit the limits of what they could do in terms of the size of the lens and the way it can be held inside the tube. So it was 40 inches. Um, and then he heard of this Carnegie institution that was founded. Oh, I want to back you. I wanna, yeah. There's a couple of things I want to talk yeah, about in Chicago sure. first. Because, A, I love Chicago. But, B, there's kind of this really... So the last two episodes, quick shameless plug here, uh, were on H.H. H. Holmes, who was um, a serial killer in Chicago. What's kind of interesting is George Hale's in Chicago during this exact time, and... H.H. H. Holmes was operating during the Chicago Fair, and they were getting the Yerkes telescope up and running for the Chicago Fair, and Yerkes was nicknamed the Ripper of Chicago. And uh, my last guest made a very strong argument that H.H. H. Holmes was actually Jack the Ripper. So there's some very interesting overlap here, uh, completely accidental, but I love that it's a theme. So there's a lot that kind of went on in Chicago during the Chicago Fair during this time period, because the Chicago's Fair also represented all the science and innovation of the world at the time. So the, the, the telescope you're talking about is very important, not only for um, Chicago, but for the world. Just wanted to make that a point. It's a very interesting time period to be alive. <laughs> and I would say also with uh, Mr. Yerkes, um, a lot of people speculate that him and Lick, that, uh, who founded a telescope in Northern California, that they were trying to um, repair their reputations. Mm. They both had yeah. kind of you know, less than stellar reputations, but they had a lot of money. And one way is to you know, found science. Um, like what Carnegie did. There you go. And I love that his name is Lick. It is L-I-C-K. Yeah. Because I was looking up L-I-C-H-T, and I was like, no, it's actually Lick. Uh, I love that. That's amazing. Um, so let's continue. So we have the 40-inch telescope. George Hale's like, we got to do better than this. We yeah. can do better. Yeah. So he had um, convinced his, his father, who was a rich man, to buy him a glass disc blank, so a 60-inch uh, diameter piece of glass. Um, but he didn't really have a place to put it. Um, so he had seen that this Carnegie Institution was being founded and was giving out grants. So he decided to ask for a grant to move a solar telescope to Mount Wilson, which is in Southern California. And he got this grant and uh, brought it here to Southern California piece by piece. They had to take it up the mountain by mule. And so each piece of the telescope had to be sort of broken down so it could fit on a mule and fit around the tight corners. Um, they installed that in 1904. So at this point, Hale was now fully invested in um, this mountaintop observatory in Southern California, which is one of the world's first, and just had this vision to keep going, keep building more telescopes and bigger and bigger ones. So where did that drive come from? Like, why? why because you mentioned, and I actually found this kind of amazing, is that he was building the largest telescope in the world, and before they've even taken first light on it, he's like, you know what? I hate this telescope. This telescope is a piece of crap. i got to make a 100-inch. And then even before he's done with the 100-inch, he was working on a 200-inch. I mean, this guy was never happy. What was the drive? Yeah, so um, I assume he actually did like the telescopes. <laughs> I don't know. Correction. Well, they all did amazing things. Um, but yeah, where was the drive? So let's let's back up to when he was a kid, okay. <laughs> if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so when he was a kid, he um, asked his father to build him a telescope in the backyard of their house, and his father was um, had a moment of insight, I assume, which was he asked his son to write a proposal. 
So Hale to get how old some, was he? Oh, I don't teenager. I, I don't know. So Hale man. Hale had to write a proposal when he was a kid. Now I don't know many kids that had to write proposals to get something like you know, say well, a super soaker or something. Right, just hold out their hand and they usually get it. Yeah, so, I like his dad. Yeah, I like that. Which I think then set him up for what he did his whole life, which he was really good at convincing people that they should be philanthropic and support these instruments. Mm. Um, he was also, I mean, he he. Talk about wearing a lot of hats. He was also a solar astronomer in his own right. He was an inventor. He invented an instrument called a spectroheliograph, which is a way of taking images of the sun in a narrow wavelength. That type of instrument, the initial design, is still being used today in a a handful of of telescopes. he, you know, was a visionary. He founded things like the National Research Council, Astrophysical Journal. He convinced Mr. Huntington to start a library and gardens. Um, he founded Caltech. We shouldn't overlook that. Convinced through Polytechnic they should become a premier technical institution in the 1920s. So, um, yeah, he was a guy with a lot of facets, but he also... He was a real human being. I mean, he sounded, he sounds larger than life, but he, one of the things about him is he struggled with um, some mental health issues through his life. There were times that he needed to withdraw from the world. So, um, you know, he would have really smart people around him to help step in. So, for example, the 100-inch telescope was actually finished by a guy named Walter Adams who needed to step in and help finish the telescope. Also, um, Um, The Carnegie Institution built Hale uh, a private solar observatory, so when he did need to withdraw, he could go there and continue his science. So, yeah, he was a complex person with a lot going on. I mean, it's it's amazing. I love that, you know, in this day and age, if you're a diva athlete, you can kind of get whatever you want or as a diva, you know, actor, actress. When you're a diva astronomer, you don't think of people building you like a, a place where you can go and be a recluse. And I love the fact that Andrew Carnegie was like, you know what? I'm going to build you a solar observatory that you can go hang out in and just get away from it all. I like that about Andrew Carnegie. Keep the talent happy, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if it was Andrew Carnegie or the Carnegie Institution, but yeah. I'm I mean, either t- way, that, that they, it was a recognized thing. I presume it wasn't talked about publicly, um, you know. But. Well, I think, you know, he, Carnegie put his name on it, and so I'm going to give him credit. He put his name on it for a reason. I'm giving him the thumbs up. So now let's talk about uh, Hale's mental issues because it it, it was kind of amazing to me that he was kind of a fragile guy mentally and I don't know there's often a correlation between the most bright among us and the severe mental strain that that can cause Um, so what kind of problems did he have Um, I mean you know it's hard to diagnose these things in retrospect but there are clearly times where he was incredibly prolific, you might argue manic, and there were times when he needed to step away from everything. Um, So I don't know if that means he's bipolar. I don't Mm. think, I'm certainly not in a place to diagnose that. Another piece of it is that he, he would hear voices and sometimes see things, but he, from my understanding from reading it, he was aware that this was happening. you know, um, and some people also speculate that um, some of this might have been enhanced by mercury exposure. Mm. So the telescopes do float on beds of mercury. So when they were being constructed, that you know, they didn't realize what mercury did. Yeah. Um, so there's some speculation about that, but again, I'm not really in a place to oh, sure. diagnose him. Well, so I've read in some conflicting stories that he, when you said he heard stories or when he heard voices. That you know, there, there. Some say that he talked to an elf. Some people said he had like a helper. Is any of that rooted in fact? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I have also read conflicting stories about that. That he would sometimes refer to his little green man, mm. but that he didn't necessarily mean that literally. That he saw a little green man, like mm. like in the uh, Jetsons. Well, he was he's little... looking out into space a lot. You don't know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's maybe possible. he found something that we don't know. Maybe about. he was an abductee. <laughs> um, but I've I've heard other people say that he he meant that as a stand-in for voices he heard or other other visions, mm. not not that it was a literal little green man. Got it. Okay. So um, so he's heavily focused on telescopes. Um, this this hundred inch journey is actually uh, it, it's it's a pretty incredible journey. So he's 
he's built this 60-inch telescope. Now, what is it? Is there any particular moment where he says, okay, this 60-inch telescope, we got to go bigger before seeing it? Did something happen that caused him to, to make his switch in focus? I mean, I think he always had this thought. I, you know, and I think if he had survived to see the 200-inch Palomar telescope come online, he probably would have already been thinking about 400,000 inches. I don't know. Um, it seemed like that was just his mindset all the time to build bigger. And of course, the bigger telescope you have, the larger um, light bucket, as we say, you have, you get to collect more and more photons so you can see things that are fainter and fainter. I mean, that, that makes sense. It's just, it's funny how he didn't even look through it and was like, all right, 60 inches, that's not enough. You know, it was just, I, I thought maybe there was like some kind of like point where he was like, okay, we want to see that galaxy. We know this isn't going to make it. Um, we got to go 100 inches. Uh, when, and what's interesting about the 100 inch telescope? So before Carnegie said yes, he'd already moved his family out here. He became very committed to these telescopes, like before any money was really committed to it. Yeah, that's my understanding too. He moved his family out effectively on spec, um, assuming that he would be able to put move a telescope to the top of Mount Miles, Mount Wilson and also build new ones up there. And right around the time that the the there were a lot, this is a pretty interesting time period because you know not only is World War One looming, but you know there was a big earthquake in San Francisco right as I think it was right as the sixty-inch telescope was finishing completion. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, nineteen oh eight. So how did that affect not only that telescope but also the thoughts of carrying around a very expensive, one of a kind, um, very fragile lens? That is a really good question. I've never gotten that question before, so I don't have the answer. I'll uh, make something. Oh, no, well. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I, I've never thought about that, actually. Um, I mean, so, okay. Stumped so earth, you. I, I mean, got you. Earthquakes with telescopes, right, is yeah. an interesting thing. So we're always worried about this in Chile right now. That's where our telescopes are. And there are big, big earthquakes that happen there. Now, a couple things happen. So one is that telescopes are, are designed to move very smoothly and to stay very still. So it means they're already on floating mechanisms. A lot of times when the earthquakes happen, they kind of they kind of jiggle on that support mechanism and things are okay. You might have to refocus. Um, and I suspect that's what's happened over the years at Mount Wilson, that you know, the way it's designed necessarily to do astronomy also helps you a little bit when you have earthquakes. I mean, it's also some, I mean, it's a, kind of the evolution of how you have to think of building in Southern California. I mean, obviously San Francisco is Northern California. So California in general, you got to think about, you know, the ground shakes and we got lots of money, you know, vertically sitting, how we protect it. Yeah, and they were also really worried about fire. So Harvard Observatory had experienced some pretty bad fires. So when they built these offices here in Pasadena, they designed them to be quote-unquote fireproof, which means they're not wooden framed. Um, and we have, they have these really thick masonry walls. Um, and it's the same up at Mount Wilson. You get horrible uh, forest fires. In fact, one, one just happened a few weeks ago. And so the domes and everything, they're, they're cement, they're metal, they're these things that at least for uh, something that's not too hot, they can survive. Wow. So it is, it's, it is amazing that, like, that it has lasted so long, given all the environmental factors that are working against it. Uh, so, so the 100-inch telescope, let's talk about the lens, because the lens is the most important part here. So this is a 9,000-pound lens, right? I mean, this is, and it's, it's an a foot thick? Yeah, so it's it's a mirror. It's not it's not a lens, but yeah, it's oh, sorry, it's yes. about that's quite all right. Piece it's of a, glass. A big piece of glass, yeah. right? Um, yeah, it's about uh, twelve or thirteen inches thick. It's hundred inches across, and it weighs um, four and a half tons, which is about nine thousand pounds. Um, it's it's huge, right? <laughs> now, it's still the largest glass mirror that was ever made, correct? Uh, in that time, yes. Now they they. Arizona makes much larger pieces of glass today. Really? Like, yeah. like routinely? Yeah, routinely. So uh, just last weekend, I was in their labs, and they were casting their 20th mirror that's over 8 meters in diameter. So 20, would we figure that out? 25 20, feet. Yeah. About 25 feet. Um, and they now do this sort of on a regular basis. They do a couple really amazing things. So one is that they don't, unlike uh, the 100-inch mirror where they would melt it in a in a vessel and then pour it into a mold. They actually melt it right directly in the mold, so there's no pouring required. The, the second mm. thing they do is while um, the glass is molten, they spin the entire oven so that the glass actually creeps up the sides and it makes a parabolic shape on its own. So you do a lot less grinding once the mirror is cooled. So imagine 
Imagine something like 19 tons of molten glass spinning around mm. in an inside of an oven and making a shape. It's wow. it's amazing. So that's done routinely today. Well, that's great because you can actually probably calculate how fast you need to spin it to get the shape that you want and have it really close to the final product you were going for. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, the science and the engineering they do there, um, it's, <laughs> the other amazing thing is it's all under the football stadium at University of Arizona. Oh, wow. Um, it's a really cool place. So science keeps advancing, right? They sure do. And, but they're always topped by football. I just want to mention that <laughs> in the university, football first, science lab underneath the football field. I was going to point that out. So uh, nothing changes. Now, I don't want to harp on this lens. I know people are probably getting sick of it, but I'm going to make you interested in this because to grind the lens, um, it is an amazing process, isn't Because the lens took a year to cool, right? So that didn't crack. I mean, it took forever to cool. And then um, I believe it was either with this or with the 200-inch telescope, people were actually using their thumb to get the final micrometers off because with every, like, 1,000 swipes, you remove, like, a quarter of a millimeter, I think, something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was Palomar, that they were using their thumbs to get all the fine the okay. fine polishing down. That's crazy. Yes. I mean, but so, so they really, this is a really accurate lens. So they put this thing into place. So now we have it built. All right, we're done talking about lenses. Or I'm sorry, mirrors. I don't know why I keep saying lenses. Just whenever I say lens, think mirror. They put the mirror into place. What do they look at first? It was perfectly flawless for right from the get-go, correct? <laughs> yeah, they wish. Um, <laughs> so the mirror was finished um, and moved up the mountain on July 1st, 1917. And about four months later is when they had first light. So first light is a very momentous time for a telescope. It's when you first train it on, a, on the sky on something that you're looking at. Um, so this happened on November 1st, 1917, so almost exactly 100 years ago. And they decided to train the telescope on Jupiter. There weren't that many people there for first light. There was George Hale, of course, as director, Walter, Walter Adams, who was his right-hand man. Um, they also brought up um, a poet, a uh, poet laureate named Alfred Noyes. Uh, he was British and was in the area, and so... What a name for a poet, Noise. Noise, N-O-Y-E-S. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. He he actually ended up writing quite a poem about first light. Um, can, you re can you recite that for us, please? I can look it up and recite it for you. Okay, we'll put that in. <laughs> yes, uh, Watchers of the Sky, I believe it's called. Okay. Um, he, um, right, so... First light, they put it on Jupiter. Uh, Hale, as director, got the uh, privilege of looking through the telescope for the first time. He climbs up the stairs, and he looks through the eyepiece, and he sees six Jupiters. Oh, that's amazing. So we discovered there were six Jupiters out there. <laughs> yeah. Changed the, again, changed the paradigm of the solar system here at Mount Wilson. It's yeah, amazing. unfortunately it meant there was some problem with the optics. Oh. Um, not really six Jupiters. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So they, you know, what, what could possibly have gone wrong? Was the mirror not uh, shaped in the right way? Was there something wrong with the secondary mirror or something else with the telescope? Um, they really didn't have... A good idea, but they had one thing they could try that night, and that was uh, somebody had noticed that the workmen had the dome, the shutter open all day, and that meant the sun could come in, and that warmed everything up. When things warm up, they expand, they change shape. It's called thermal expansion. So they figured the only thing they could do that night is just wait, leave the dome open, and let things cool down. Um, they decided to go to the dormitory, which is called the monastery, and um, try to get some sleep. As it turns out, nobody could sleep. <laughs> About 2.30 in the morning, they come back to the telescope. And um, Jupiter, unfortunately, at this point had set, so they had to put it on a bright star. I don't know which star, unfortunately. Uh, but they put it on a bright star. George Hale does the same thing, where he climbs the stairs, he leans over, he looks through the eyepiece, and this time he sees a perfect pinpoint of light. So it really was just thermal expansion, and it's wow. still an issue. I mean, telescopes around the world, when you start at the beginning of the night, you have to let everything cool down to uh, be the same temperature as the you know, air around you. And, um, yeah, so everything was great, as it turns out. Well, I, I mean, that is it, – it's kind of weird. I mean, th th that you could just – a couple degrees changes everything about the mirror. Um, how sensitive is this thing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's probably a pretty good measure of the sensitivity that um, 
you can have the dome open during the day and let it heat up too much. And if you do, then you're just going to have to be prepared at the beginning of the night. You have to let it cool back down. But this thing took a year to cool down. Um, I assume that that's from extremely high temperatures that were not the same as someone leaving the dome open. But right. I, I imagine it's got, I mean, in an hour or two, that could still throw off your work. Yeah, it can totally throw off your work. Um, you know, um, if you go to an observatory today or even at Mount Wilson, they try to get the cool air in there earlier in the day so that it's ready when it when you get dark. Oh, so this is still like air cooled today. They don't have like an advanced system to keep the, le- the mirror in... Um one temperature. No, I mean, the telescope for the most part is as it was 100 years ago with the addition of modern controlling mechanisms. Um, There's a wonderful group of volunteers up there today at the Mount Wilson Institute who maintain and operate the telescopes, and they've done some really wonderful upgrades. But for the most part, the telescope is as it was 100 Hmm. years ago. Wow. So what happened to the workmen who left the dome open? (laughs) I have no idea, but I mean, I was he allowed to continue living, or what, what happened? I assume so. Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, I think you, you, when you're working in a dome, it's quite dark, so often you open the shutter just to get some light in. Mm-hmm. And presumably that day, because they knew that all these dignitaries were coming up for first light, they needed to finish everything up. So I assume yeah. it was open all day for that. Um, I don't actually know what happened to the workmen. Unbelievable. Can you look into that? Can we do a follow-up? Because I do want to find out. The minutia, it's like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. I want to find out what happened to this workman. Uh, so... So this thing finally works. They're, they're doing all kinds of amazing observations. So what kind of stuff was, was discovered here? Yeah, so um, I'm going to hit a couple of the big highlights. So let's talk about those Copernican revolutions. People aren't as excited about low lights, just for just for future <laughs> reference. They want, the, they want the good stuff. We're, we're going for the good stuff here, yeah. um, really good stuff. So 1923, so that's, what, six years after First Light, um, Edwin Hubble, hopefully you've heard of him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hubble Space Telescope's named after him. He Quite a personality. Yeah, he was quite a personality, and he spent his entire astronomical career here after graduate school um, and going oh, overseas. Oh, no, really? Yes. Oh, he, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he, he was also a grad student at the University of Chicago, and um, by the way, I'm also an alma mater. University of Chicago is also my alma mater. What? Oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> and the telescope was built in Chicago and moved here. Yeah, the big dome was was built there, yeah. um, which is amazing. Right, so Edwin Hubble, 1923. He um, is, is his office still here? Like, could we go, like, hang out there? Yeah, it, it moved around a few times, but uh-huh. uh, there is one that we're pretty sure where he was. We didn't really keep records of where people sat for the most what? part. In the bathroom, just r- really quickly, there's coat hangers there with people's names on it. Yeah, those From, like, were, the 50s or 30s or... What's 30s. kind of funny about those hooks, they were actually for towels. So before paper towels... You, each astronomer or worker here, they would have their own hook and you would get a towel on Monday and you would use it all week to dry your hands and then starting, they'd be laundered in the next week, you'd have another towel. I know in the 1960s when they moved over to paper towels, um, there was uh, one of the old astronomers here named Joy was his last name. He would on Monday take his first paper towel, dry his hands and hang it on his hook and use it all week. Oh, that's amazing. Which I think a is... A paper towel? A paper towel, just oh. because he was so, you know... Uh, well, change is bad, right? <laughs> well, that's pretty ingrained in your habits. But, I mean, all you have to do... Okay, I like, I like the environmental nature of that, so I'm on board with it. But just bring a towel in. Just change the habit a little bit. Just bring in a real towel... Like, from home. Why didn't he do that? Oh, uh, who knows? He he seems like a character. We have photos of him that are really funny. So I, sus- I assume it was um, him getting a laugh out of it, too. Uh, that's that's amazing. I didn't know. So people knew. I thought it was for hats or something. But I guess you don't wear your hat around to the bathroom. I don't know. What was I don't know what the 60s were like. Anyway, um, so back to Edwin Hubble. Um, so he was not, presumably didn't wear a hat to work. Uh, I don't know. He was a pretty prim and proper guy. He insisted that uh, when he was at the telescope, everybody there, including the workers, had to wear suits and ties. Oh, I like that. Yeah. He, um, according to some stories, he affected an English accent his whole life, even though he grew up in Missouri. Uh, he was a Rhodes Scholar, so he came back with an English accent. So people say. I love that. Um, I have a recording of him much later in his life, and he doesn't have that accent. He does not. No. <laughs> It'd be great if it was like a Cockney accent. Oh, uh, that would be pretty good. No. <laughs> it was, um, his accent, I would call it a mid-Atlantic. It was much that old-timey radio accent is kind of what he had going on for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so, right. 
uh, Edwin Hubble, right? University of Chicago, PhD, came to the Carnegie Institution. Um, and yeah, 1923, he was studying uh, these objects in our universe called nebulae, is what they were called at the time. But there are these fuzzy blobs that are around, and some look like spiral shapes. And so he had uh, an interest in studying them in more detail, and specifically in 1923, he was looking for a type of exploding star called a nova. Um, and he took a picture of Andromeda on uh, September 5th, 1923, and he later then looked at his plate. So all these images are taken on glass, and he analyzed them later in the well, lab. What do you mean taken on glass? Right. So you, if you think of old-time photography, you've probably heard of tintypes and other types of old photos. But of course. Yeah. So really old photos were done on glass, where you wow. would apply a photographic emulsion to the surface of glass, and then you put it in your camera or telescope and expose it, and then you have to develop it in a whole series bath of chemicals, like old, old school photography. Wow. And you would reveal an image. So it's actually individual photons, say, coming from millions of light years away, coming to your telescope, interacting with that emulsion, and creating that image for you. Um, so what a journey for a photon. You know, it's like blasted out from this far distant galaxy and its final life is to live, you know, developing a picture on a plate. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty cool, right? I mean, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's mind blowing when you think about it, right? And that it, and, and when it comes into your telescope, it gets bounced off that main mirror, the 100 inch mirror, it goes up to a secondary mirror and then often comes out to a tertiary mirror, a third mirror. So it's bounced around a few times and then whacks into this piece of glass. And then that's it. And that's it. And then it gives us an answer about the universe. So, you know, astronomy yeah. is a, astronomy is a science of photography in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, most, I mean, things are changing just in the last few years where it's not necessarily light that we're looking at. But for the most part, astronomy is a science of light. And the universe gives us a lot of light. So if you can if you can capture those photons and that light and break them apart and understand everything you can about what happened with that light in between or what its nature is, you can learn so much about the universe. Wow. Um, so these million-year-old photons sent on a journey, they've been flying through the galaxy at the speed of light because that's what light travels at. I don't know if you're aware of that. Light travels <laughs> at the speed of light. Uh, so they're blasting through, and their final destination is to rattle around in a telescope and then end up on this plate. Um, so not so lucky for the photon, but incredibly important for the entire human race. Yeah, that's right. That's a really good way of putting it. <laughs> thank, <laughs> um, thank you. <laughs> yes. It's, it's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it in that way. Yeah. Um, so back to our story of Edwin yeah, so, Hubble. So Hubble, yeah. So he He's looking around. for these novae, which are a type of exploding star. And, of course, to, to see that a star is exploding, you need to compare it against nights before, right, or mm, some weeks mm. before to see that it was dim and then got really bright and then got dim again. Um, so if you look at this plate, he's marked a few dots at, with an N for Nova. Uh, but there was one that he noticed as he was comparing it against different nights that it got brighter in an unusual way, but it also got dim, and then it got bright again, and then it got dim, and then it got bright again, and then it got dim, right? So it's not an exploding star. It's a variable star. Mm -hmm. And um, he realized that it wasn't just any old variable star. It was a very special one called a Cepheid variable. Cepheid variable stars are like the universe's yardsticks, cosmic yardsticks. Um, and we know that because of work done by a woman named Henrietta Leavitt. Um, she was studying Cepheid variables and found this relationship between brightness and the period, so how frequently it gets bright and dark and how bright it actually gets. Um, so when Edwin Hubble finds the Cepheid variable, thanks to Henrietta Leavitt, he knew what he had. He crossed out the N, and he writes V-A-R in bright red with an exclamation point. He knew he had a yardstick. Now, the reason why this is so important is that at the time in the early 20th century, um, a lot of people thought that the Milky Way was the entirety of our universe. Um, and... You know, as usual with this, we always think we're in the center. Oh, people, man. <laughs> I know. We're always, we're the most important things the, out there, right? That's the point I was making before. Like, we never learn from history. We just think we're the center of it all. We think we're the center of it all, so. There's aliens is what I'm trying to get at. Anyway, go on. <laughs> so he, um, there were people, though, who thought maybe these spiral nebulae that are out there, they might be outside the Milky Way. They weren't sure. Mm. Um and wanted Still to invest sure. they it. weren't sure right <laughs> yeah. so you have to investigate it in more sure. detail so when edwin hubble on september 5th 1923 
finds that Cepheid variable, he realizes he has a yardstick. He has a way of measuring distance and a way to figure out if this nebula is inside of the Milky Way or outside. And what he had was he was actually looking at the Andromeda galaxy, as we call it now. So he realized it's not only outside of our Milky Way, but it's really far away compared to the size of our Milky Way. And Andromeda is kind of big on the sky. So imagine something kind of, you're looking at it, it's kind of big and it's really far away. That means it itself must be enormous. It must be an, a huge collection of stars, just like our own Milky Way. Because you can see it with the naked eye um, on a very bright night, on a dark night, bright sky, correct? Yeah, and it usually, with the naked eye, it looks like a bit of a shadow. It's pretty mm. hard to see, um, but yeah, if it's if you have a dark enough sky, you can see mm. it, and it, you can actually just get a good pair of binoculars, and you can see Andromeda. It's, it's one of our closest neighbors. I mean, it's funny when I tell this story, and I say it's so far away, compared to the science done today, it's not that far away, right. but compared to the size of our Milky Way, it very much is. Um, so we refer to that discovery. We say it's the day our universe was discovered. It's really the discovery of galaxies other than our own, which is incredibly profound, right? Milky Way is not the only game in town. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that is, it is monumental. I mean, because that's probably the biggest discovery that happened. Um, I, I would argue it to the point for the human race, but definitely here at the 100-inch at the telescope. If we're going to center ourselves, we're going to be the center. The 100-inch telescope is the center of the story. That's probably the biggest discovery that happened here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that one, it's probably closely rivaled by 1920, discovery in 1929. So we have our, our, the same guy, Edwin Hubble. <laughs> this time he has his, um, a guy he's working with whose name is Milton Hummison, who has a really fascinating story in his own I was going right. to make sure we got to talk about him before we finish up, because he's amazing. We will. Um, so let's, let's talk about the discovery yeah. first. So um, 1929. Um, Hubble and Hummison are looking at lots of distant galaxies. So now galaxies have been discovered, um, and they are um, looking at what are called the spectra of galaxies. So imagine taking the light from a galaxy and putting it sort of through a prism, and you spread out the light into its component wavelengths like a rainbow. And when you do this, um, you can use that as a way of measuring motion. Um, and the way that's done is something like the Doppler effect. So when you have an ambulance go by, uh, you know how it, it gets higher pitched as it comes towards you and lower pitched as mm. it goes away. And I won't um, subject your listeners <laughs> to my impression of an ambulance. No, that's okay. <laughs> um, but that is the Doppler effect with sound. And the same thing happens with light as uh, if an object is moving towards you, the light gets compressed and shifted more to the blue. If an object is moving away from you, the light is sort of pulled apart a little bit and shifted to the red. So what Hubble and Hummison did in 1929, looking at all these galaxies, is they discovered almost all, not quite all, but almost all of them were shifted to the red, which means all these galaxies they're looking at all around are moving away from us. Mm. And the modern implication of that, our sort of modern understanding, is that space itself is expanding. Um, and that's, you know, it, it plays into what's the fate of our universe, what's the shape of our universe. There's many, many things that, that fall out of this initial discovery um, that people are still working on today. Um, it's, it's huge, right? This idea that space mm. is expanding is, again, mind-blowing. Well, because that's kind of the origin of the Big Bang, right? That discovery? Yeah, uh, yeah, it led it led to somebody hypothesizing about the Big Bang. Absolutely, right. which is which is kind of the you know I mean that's the the theory of the beginning of the universe from a scientific standpoint. Um, that's pretty amazing. I mean, that's essentially those two discoveries. I mean, they changed the paradigm that we still are under today. Like, we still use all that stuff. It's the foundation. It's the foundation. I mean, we totally stand on the shoulders of giants, and there are lots of active research groups around the world that are still trying to understand the expansion of space. They're trying to understand dark energy. They're trying to understand how you measure accurate distances. All of these things fall out of those first two discoveries. Yeah, it's incredible. Now, let's talk about his right-hand man, Milton Hummison. Is I'm saying that correctly? Yeah, you got okay. it. I'm going to let you take it over. This is this is a really a story, an inspirational story. Yeah, Mil Milton Hummison is one of my favorite people here, um, characters. And actually, recently, I got to give his granddaughter and great-grandson a tour and show oh, him wow. stuff. And they were just incredibly kind, nice people. Um, so Milton Hummison, he was a local boy. He grew up in the Pasadena area. And... Um, 
uh, as the story goes, his girlfriend's father worked up at the observatory on Mount Wilson, and he thought that was pretty cool. Now, Milton barely finished eighth grade, and he never went to high school. So he just wanted a job, any job, with the observatory. And so he got one as a mule driver, which mm. means that he... Mule driver. Mule driver, as it's called, yeah. He uh, helped drive the mules up the mountain with the telescope parts as they were building telescopes in the early days. Um, he showed a lot of interest in the astronomy. And there was an astronomer here named Seth Nicholson who saw his interest and decided to sort of take him under his wing show him how to use a telescope. And it turns out that Milton had an incredible talent for using telescopes. He was just a natural at it. And he wasn't just a natural at using telescopes and taking really amazing pictures. He was also ended up being a really good astronomer. He had to sort of learn on the job. Um, so he became the go-to guy if you had a difficult observation. Um, that's why Edwin Hubble wanted to work with him. Edwin Hubble needed spectra of very, very, very faint dim galaxies. And the only person that could do it was Milton Humason. And he would do these remarkable things like hang from a rafter just to uh, get the right image or mm. take uh, spectra that took an entire week every night for hours and hours and hours training it on one object, coming back, realigning it, and continuing the wow. uh, exposure. I mean, it's just a type of astronomy that's not really done today in that way. Um, so he was a remarkable man. He went from mule driver um, and ended up being a full staff astronomer, which here is the equivalent of faculty. And you know, today, of course, you would need a PhD to do that, but Milton didn't even finish high school. But he had Edwin Hubble, he had the celebrity, he had the diva saying like, hey, it's my guy. <laughs> yeah. That's all it takes. They got along, and they actually got along pretty well. Not everybody got along with Edwin Hubble. In fact, I would say most people did not get along with Edwin Hubble. Um, but Hummison was a guy who seemed to, he could just get along with anybody. Yeah. Um, um, and there's another story about him that you might enjoy hearing. I, I want to mention, I want to do yeah. one thing, because this is kind of cool. One small little uh, addendum to that is when the observatory first opened, he was listed as a janitor there. So he had already moved up from mule driver to janitor when the observatory opened a hundred years ago. Yeah, I mean, he um, he had his hand in a lot of things, but yeah, ended up eventually becoming a full-on astronomer and observer. It's incredible. All right, so what's this other story? Okay, I want to hear more so about this um, because he was the local boy, um, the uh, people who ran Mount Wilson were having problems with mountain lions. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, uh-oh. Um, I wish I could remember what year this happened, but I don't. Probably the 1920s. Okay. Um, so they were having problems with mountain lions. And so the direct, the uh, sort of site superintendent, site manager, decided to ask the local boy, Old Milt, if he could come help take care of their mountain lion problem. So Milton get his sh got his shotgun and hunted this mountain lion that was you know really pestering everybody and killed it. And, um, I mean, today, of course, this would be horrible and sad. Mm -hmm. um, I it's think still horrible and sad. It is. It is. Yeah. It's terrible. You sound heartless when you're saying that. I, I know. I know. It's it's more about what ended up happening after that. So the, the local newspapers got wind of that, that Milton was hunting down this, the mountain lion. So they were actually able to get a photo of him and would make him like drape the mountain lion over his shoulders oh or God. over a tree. Um, and so he became known as this mountain lion killer. Um, <laughs> On and top he, of astronomer. And, and in a way, he, he hated this because he didn't actually go hunt mountain lions as a matter of course. It's just that he was asked to because this one was... This one time. This one time. Um, but as a sort of wink, wink, nod, nod, uh, this was uh, during Prohibition. And, you know, local boy was friends with lots of farmers, so he had a ready supply of hooch. <laughs> and he would keep a flask of hooch, and he called it his panther tamer. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, the other piece of this is Seth Nicholson, the guy who taught him how to use telescopes. He took great delight. People would come up the mountain and ask, oh, do you have problems with bears and mountain lions? And Seth would say, oh, we used to. But old Milt, he's killed them all. Wow. You know, and it's funny when you, if the mountain lions probably got together and they're like, hey, we got this human problem we got to go take care of. And they sent their equivalent of Milt, who was whatever this mountain lion was, to go take care of the humans. And the humans sent their guy out to get the mountain lion. It's really a battle of wits from the two different species. There you go. It's a battle of wit, astronomical wits. Astronomical wits. Um, yeah, he was a he's an incredible guy. I love the fact that he was local, um, Pasadena, Mount Wilson. Uh, this is an incredible place. A lot of history. You have a lot of knowledge of all the little tidbits. Is there anything you want? Any story you want to leave people with? I know you've got a couple stories probably rattling around that you want to get out. 
Oh, that's a really good question. So, um, yeah, I mean, here at the Carnegie Observatories, we also had uh, what were called computers. So by computer, I don't mean a <laughs> series say, of tubes yeah. <laughs> with a screen. What I mean is people who would do calculations. They would compute, right? And they oh, would a do human calculator. A human calculator, exactly. Wow. Um, so if you've, seen this, if you've seen the movie Hidden Figures, um, uh-huh. they are sort of like the granddaughters of the astronomy computers. There were women who worked at Harvard. They might be the most well-known. And we had a group of women working here at the Carnegie Observatories. And I think their contributions get lost and sort of forgotten. Um, And I'm hoping as like a long-term project to really research them and find out more about them. And recently I came across a uh, photo album of one of these computers, one of these women, and they were her, it was her snapshots in this photo album. Hmm. And it's incredibly charming because most of our photos in our historic collection are very posed and formal. (laughs) Right, yeah. And hers were much more relaxed. And there are some really famous women astronomers that she captured who visited here. Uh, One of those is um, a woman named Charlotte E. Moore. So I had, when I started working here, I was sort of on a hunt to find tangible evidence, physical evidence of a woman in our plate vault. And I knew the women had worked on these plates and done these calculations and reductions, but they didn't necessarily leave their mark like the astronomers did. Um, And late one night, about a year ago, I was looking in the solar vault and these solar plates, and I found this old plate, and way at the bottom, it was written in all this, like, you know, fountain pen ink, and way at the bottom is a little pencil mark, and it says, uh, measured by CEM 1938. And when I found this, I screamed really loud in the basement. Did you really scream? I really did. I was so excited. I went running down the hall, picked up the phone to call my husband, who also works here, and the phone call went something like this. Oh my God, you won't believe it. I just thought I'm so excited. <laughs> I was just, you know, talking a million miles a minute. And his comment was, slow down. I can't understand a word <laughs> you're saying. So CEM is Charlotte E. Moore. She is an atomic physicist extraordinaire. She won the Bruce Medal. Um, she has tons of accolades. She, um, one of the things that I knew her for is these tables of atomic spectra. So, um, you know, there are many, many sciences, but particularly physics, where you need to understand these spectral lines of each element, and it gets very complicated. Mm. And she had compiled these tables over her career at the National Institutes of Standards and Technology. But what I hadn't realized is that she spent two years here at Mount Wilson before she got a PhD. And what she was doing was she was analyzing these atomic lines in the spectra of the sun, and she recalibrated the international angstrom scale. So what I had was a plate from that time period. And she ended up being such, having such a good relationship with Mount Wilson that even though she went on to get her PhD at Berkeley and then went on to NIST, um, that she was still used plates from Mount Wilson. They would ship them hmm. to her, and she would do her analysis on these plates. Wow. Um, so I didn't just find a woman in the vault. I found this amazing, amazing physicist, and wow. I was really excited. Do you still have the plate? Is it in your office? Or yeah, it's downstairs in the vault. I'll show it okay. to you later. Uh, I'm going to put up a picture of that. Um, do you still have the photos from the photo album? Um, yeah, they're, they're copies. I have some, yeah. I'd love to put those up, too, because I think you're right. Like, that kind of a look, the pose look is great. You know, people love doing that. But that kind of behind-the-scenes, kind of carefree, um, I love that. I want to see some of those. Yeah. It's incredible. So another little funny uh, behind-the-scenes story is that in our, we have this pretty vast uh, historical photographic collection that's now held at the Huntington Library. And I was uh, looking through it, and I kept seeing this dog in these pictures. Uh-huh. And it looks like some type of Jack Russell. And there's one where it's sitting on a truck. And I had wondered what in the world is going on with this dog. And it turns out that his name was Puppyheimer. <laughs> I like that. That's yeah. I, I don't think the dog necessarily had any contributions to uh, our understanding of the universe. but I you, just, don't know. you don't know. You don't know that. That's true. I don't know. Thank goodness they didn't, uh, like the Russians, ship him into space, right? <laughs> Oh, well, so th- whose dog was he? Do, they, do you know? Um, I don't know whose dog, but it was around a lot, so I, I wouldn't be shocked if he actually lived here. Wow, that's incredible. Um, I love that. I, I want to end on a puppy story, so we're going to do that. How can people come and check this place out? Is, do you guys let people come check it out? Do you guys live in seclusion? How does it work? How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so we are a 
private institution, um, but we hold a few public events that we would love everybody to come to. So in the spring, so this is coming up uh, soon, we do a lecture series, a public lecture series hmm. um, at the Huntington Library. It's totally free. You just need to grab a ticket when they go up for sale. Um, the other thing is every October we have an open house and we fully open our campus and we have a ton of activities. We have stuff for kids, stuff for adults. Uh, it's usually an ice cream social. Um, so you can come and get your fill of astronomy and uh, perhaps most importantly, get up, up close with astronomers and ask them all the questions that you've been dying to ask an astronomer. Mm -hmm. And then the other way that you can interact with us is follow us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, we're at Carnegie Astro. And uh, I try to put up a lot of stories about our history and our current science. We have a lot of amazing discoveries that continue to happen every day. Uh, it is pretty amazing. The most recent is about a zombie star, um, which I found to be very interesting. Uh, so check that out. Um, this has been incredible. Cynthia, thank you so much for sitting down with me. This has been eye-opening. And um, I do believe, I'm going to end it with this, I do believe that Puppyheimer contributed greatly not only to the understanding of the human race, but pushed canine kind into the future. Um, and thank you for discovering that. I'm putting that on you. So thank you for that as well. Thank you for having me. Um, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you love this show, you got to check out the website, fascinatingnouns.com. At the bottom, you can find links to all the show's social media. We got Pinterest, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. YouTube, lots of YouTube videos for the show, uh, lots of pictures on Pinterest. Check it out there. And you can also subscribe to the newsletter where you can learn all about upcoming projects, not only for this, but for other things. And you can also go to danieljglenn.com. If you love what I do, you can find out other projects that I'm doing. And I'm guessing you've fallen in love with this show. Never miss an episode. You can find this show, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now tune in. Check it out. Never miss an episode. Thank you. End of transmission.